To this book, I owe my life. Through this book, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I really was alive. This letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. So writes John McKay of this fantastic book. I want to welcome you to our study of the book of Ephesians this morning. Where we will cover just the first couple of verses. And my prayer is that we would have this kind of experience. That we would walk away from the book of Ephesians saying, it's doctrine set to music. It is theology that fuels my life into doxology. I want to praise God because of what he has done in me and who he is making me to be as I walk out the truth. This indeed is an incredible work. So we come to the first couple verses, in the first chapter in general this morning. I want you to walk away with one main idea. And I've written it for you there on your insert. And it's this, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in light of that, I want to encourage you to be faithful. The similar application is the one we looked at a long time ago now, back in Psalm chapter 127, when we observed that God is at work, and it's his work that is ultimately decisive in all things. And that empowers us to work faithfully and freely without having to be fretful. Ultimately, we can be faithful and trust that God is going to work all things out according to the counsel of his will. We'll see this truth this morning as demonstrated for us in the life of Paul, the Ephesians, and then ourselves. Let's pray, and we will begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We pray that you would give us ears to truly hear. We ask that you would tune our hearts to the melody that your spirit is playing. Lord, encourage us this morning. Make us more like Christ this morning. Speak to us. Your words are life. We do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We are hungry this morning, God. We ask that you would help us to feast on Christ and to be satisfied. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Word 1. Paul. Who is Paul? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that Paul is not the recipient of this letter. Right? In the ancient world, they had the much more practical practice of letting you know who it is that's doing the writing at the front end rather than at the back end. Right? None of this, dear John, dear Kate, dear whomever, and then you're like guessing. If you're like me, you get a letter in the mail, and you're like, I have to flip to the last page and look at the bottom. Okay, that's who's writing to me. Emails eliminated some of this for us. But in the ancient world, they wanted you to know who it was that was doing the talking right from the jump. And so Paul is announcing himself. He's the one that's writing this letter. Now, if you've grown up in church, you're probably 
pretty familiar with the Apostle Paul. And no introduction is really necessary. Nevertheless, I think we would be remiss if we did not at least rehearse some of the basic contours of Paul's life. Paul first comes to our attention in the book of Acts, the end of of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, wherein he is presiding over the murder of Stephen. Remember, Stephen is there witnessing to all the people. He's telling them how all of history has worked its way to Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the climax and the pinnacle and the point and the purpose of all of reality. He's telling of his substitutionary death, of his justifying resurrection, about how every promise of God finds its yes in Christ. The people reject this message. They identify Stephen as a blasphemer and begin to stone him. And there we meet Paul, who's identified initially by his Hebrew name, Saul, gathering coats at his feet so that those who would murder Stephen might better bury him beneath stones. We meet him again at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, where he is described as breathing out threats against the disciples, against what was simply known as the way. That's Christianity. He understood Christianity to be a cult, some offshoot, some divergent and defunct form of Judaism. Paul wanted to snuff out the church. He hated it. He writes of his former life in Judaism this way in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and how I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul wanted to crush the church. Breathing out threats against the church. He even got permission to go and seek out and persecute the church beyond the borders of Jerusalem where the church was flourishing. He was hunting Christians. And as he is on his way to persecute some, to arrest others, He's blinded by the light, knocked from the back of his horse. He experiences a holy disruption. That's a phrase Dennis taught me a few weeks ago, but he gets credit. I like it. And it's one I want you to to think of as we work through the text. Paul experiences a holy disruption of his plans. He had had planned his way, but the Lord was establishing his steps. He was off to persecute the church, but God's plan was for him to establish the church. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul writes of this experience in Acts chapter 26 and verse 13. He's before King Agrippa speaking. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We've pointed this out once before, and I think it's worthy of pointing out once again. That in persecuting the church, Paul was persecuting Jesus. Jesus so identifies with his church, with his 
people that to slander them, to act violently against them, is to act violently against Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because that's how united Jesus Christ is to his people. That's how united Jesus Christ is to you, brother and sister. Jesus identifies with his people. Jesus identifies with his church. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus does not tolerate persecution against his church. It will not go unnoticed. He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul hated the church and ironically he ends up building the church. One of the wonderful things we find in the letter to the Ephesians is is a major theme of the glory of the church. We learn about God's purposes in the church to unite all things under Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, to make His manifold wisdom known in the spiritual realm. The church we, we will see as we work through this letter is the body of Christ of which He is the head. The church is the new temple and the household or the family of God comprised of Jew and Gentile alike made one new man in Christ Jesus. See that the church is the bride of Christ. We learn that the church is gifted, empowered, and a spirit-endowed community. One of the things that should happen to us as a result of reading the book of Ephesians is that we should walk away with a much more highly exalted view about what the church is and how it fits into God's plan. The church is God's plan for making Christ known among all the nations in all the world. The church is God's plan of bringing glory to himself through its announcement about what Jesus Christ has done. I pray that this book would have that kind of impact on you and on me. So that when we gather together on the Lord's Day, each Lord's Day, we would recognize just what incredible a thing it is that we are doing. Just how majestic a thing it is that we are participating in. Something happens when God's people gather together. We ought to recognize that. To drag ourselves to church. We should be longing to come here. Knowing that this is the place where we spur one another on towards good deeds and love. Knowing that this is where encouragement is found. We're going through something difficult in our lives and we need comfort. And we're just so tempted to isolate ourselves. And that's the opposite reaction. We should be going towards God's people. We should want to draw near to God to sing songs about the gospel. To be reminded that Christ loves us. Some of us get get caught in sin. And we think, oh, I can't go to church now. Got to clean myself up. Once I get myself right, then I can go. That's the wrong reaction. Friends, have you ever pondered the outrageous truth that your sin doesn't cause God to run away from you? It causes God to come to you. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It's like when we are children of God and we become children of God by being born again, by putting our faith in Jesus, when we sin, he views us sort of like a parent might view their child when they fall and skin their knee. He comes to us. He wants to heal us and, and to comfort us. And to help make us whole again. The idea that we would withdraw from God's people. Something wicked befalls us. is a lie. The devil. It's It's a way that we trick ourselves into robbing ourselves of the blessings that God has given to us in in the church. Paul wants us to see how glorious this community is in Ephesians. And he learns how glorious it is by virtue of his union with Christ. 
See, Paul's perspective on the church is not the only thing that that changed on the road to Damascus. It wasn't even the first thing that changed. The first thing that changed was his perspective on Christ, his personal relationship with God. No longer would he persecute the church. No, he he would learn to say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a complete inversion of Paul's perspective of Christ. Moves from seeing Jesus as a messianic pretender, blasphemous criminal, rightly hung on Calvary's tree, to seeing him as the crucified Messiah who is risen from the dead. When Paul was blinded by the light and knocked from his horse, he began to see for the first time. He understood that Jesus really was the one prophesied by the prophets, that Jesus really was the fulfillment of the law that Jesus really was the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations. Jew and Gentile alike would be blessed by virtue of their faith in him. Indeed, Jesus really was the seed of Eve who crushes the head of the serpent. Paul would come to understand that Jesus really is his deliverer, his redeemer, that Jesus really is king, that Jesus really is God in the flesh. Paul would put his faith in Jesus and he would pen epistle after epistle. He would go place after place preaching this wonderful truth that King Jesus came into this world to save sinners, even murderous ones. The most vile and helpless of sinners, Jesus came into this world to save. Jesus came into this world to save people like you and me. Liars and cheats, those who who can't even live up to their own standards, let alone God's standard, those who have lived without reference to God, Jesus came to save them. Understanding this, Paul exalts in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died to save us. This is an incredible truth, Christian. Praise God for his work in Paul's life, for that holy disruption of the Apostle Paul. Praise God if you're here and you're a Christian for his holy disruption of your life. You had plotted your way and were walking straight into the hell that you had earned with your rebellious life. But God intervened and established your steps so that you might trust in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So that you might be born again. Adopted as a son and daughter into the family of God. Praise God for His work in you, for His grace that was greater and is greater than all of your sin. Non-Christian, I hope and pray that God would disrupt your life. I pray that He might be unsettling you even right now. As you think, I I have sin. I'm not perfect. I haven't lived my life according to to God's word. I, I need a Savior. I want you to know that Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes you. Put your faith in Him. Trust Him. He will give you forgiveness from sin with the promise of freedom from death. He holds the keys of death in Hades. 
He has conquered the grave. Paul, his whole life was flipped upside down when he was pushed from the back of a horse. And not only that, not only was his perspective on the church changed, not only was his personal relationship with God and and Christ changed, he found a whole new purpose for his life. In Acts 9, Paul is is being sent to a man named Ananias who's supposed to open his eyes. And Ananias has heard about Paul's reputation of taking out Christians. And so he has some questions for God. He's like, I don't really want to go and open this Paul's eyes. Because once he can see me, he's probably going to try to kill me. I don't know if you know who Paul is. But it's probably not great for me to engage with him. And God says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Go, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, recounting the experience back in Acts chapter 26 and verse 16, recounts the words of Christ to him, wherein Jesus says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul did not make himself an apostle. Paul had his own plans for his life, but the Lord established his steps. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He saved Paul, and then he had a purpose for Paul to serve as an apostle. Paul speaks of it this way in Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And then in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And he he goes on, but but you can see the point. Paul didn't choose to make himself an apostle. God did that. And why would he? I mean, if he knew what it meant for him to become an apostle of God, shipwreck and chains and being stoned and being beaten. And yet this is what God called him to. God made Paul an apostle. And at this juncture, we have to ask the simple question, what exactly is an apostle? And we can think of it in two ways. There's a, a, a small a apostle, right? Lowercase a apostle. And this just means generally somebody who is sent. It's used of various people throughout the New Testament. It could be used of, of you know, I could make uh, Owen an apostle. Well, he's not old enough yet. But, but if he was 16, I could make him an apostle to the IGA, right? He, he would represent me, he would go, I would send him out to, to get it milk or whatever. He was a little a apostle. The second way the New Testament uses the term apostle is with a special sense. We'll call it a, a capital A apostle. This kind of apostle has special authority from Jesus to act on Jesus' behalf and even write Jesus' words. Paul has a special authority that is bound up in his designation as an apostle. The capital A apostle is, is a title that is reserved only for the twelve and for Paul. No one else. It is a special and unique office 
And what it means is that when we read Paul's words in Ephesians or or in Timothy or in Galatians, when we read the words that have come from his pen, we are reading the very words of God. The scriptures are inspired by God. God reveals himself through his word, through the pen of Paul the apostle in this book. Paul is an apostle, therefore we should listen to him. And he didn't make himself an apostle. He's an apostle, well you see it there in verse 1, by the will of God. Eat this book. Live in the book of Ephesians. I want to challenge you to live in the book of Ephesians for the next however many months we are in it. It will change you. This this book, the whole Bible contains the words of God, but this is the book we're studying as a church, and this book will change you. It won't leave you the same if you commit yourself to submitting to it, to praying through it, to, to seeking Christ in it. See, it's hard. It'll take discipline and time, but, but not that much time. I mean, maybe you don't have a ton of time, but, but you have a commute. You can, you can download Crossways ESV Bible app on your phone, and you can actually have that bad boy read to you the book of Ephesians, and it will take all of 23 minutes. You can listen to the whole book of Ephesians before you even get to Charlottesville from here. Commit yourself to reading through this book or listening through this book once a week until we're through with it. Commit yourself to discovering all that God has to teach you through his word as we study this book as a church together. If we leave the study of Ephesians the same, it will be our fault Let us commit ourselves to hearing God's voice in His Word. So many of us, so many people say, I want to, want to hear God speak. I want God to speak to me. And if you want to hear God speak to you, what you can do is stand in your bedroom and read the book of Ephesians out loud. God speaks through His Word. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, who, who are these saints? And, and I, I think we should uh, do some work here uh, and uncover what, what does this word saint mean? Because a lot of misnomers and misguided ideas have kind of grown up over this word, right? I think if you come to your rank and file uh, Christian and you say, good morning, saint, most of them will look at you, I, I am no saint, right? I think some of that's due to, to some of the teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that has this like super spiritual class of person that's designated as a saint. That's not, that's not what the Bible means. And it, it really has slipped into our, our contemporary language, right? Like, don't say that about my mother, she's a saint, right? But, but saint, the word just means holy or holy ones. Hagios. In holiness, as it relates to people, means really there's two connotations or two ideas. One is that we are set apart for God. And the other is that we are reflecting the moral character of God. This is what it means to be a saint. Really, we can get from the word saint kind of the whole lay of the land in the book of Ephesians. Our big, big picture, there are six chapters. The first three chapters teach us about what it means to be set apart to God as holy. Doctrine. And the second three chapters teach us about what it means to walk in the light, to walk worthy of the gospel, to walk in love. You'll notice the word walk shows up a lot in the second part of Ephesians. It shows us what it means to reflect God's holy character. Devotion. Two halves, doctrine and devotion. And they go together. They can't be separated and the order is important. God saves us, and then we start to live in light of our love for him. Doctrine and devotion. A saint 
is someone who has trusted in Christ. So you all are saints. It's, it's really interesting. Did you know Paul never uses the word Christian to talk about those who follow Christ in the New Testament? He doesn't do it. But he does use the word saint 39 times to speak of those who are trusting in Christ. Maybe, maybe we should use it a little bit more. Brother and sister, saints, those who have been declared holy in Christ and who are becoming in practice what you've been declared in Christ. Holy. In using the term saint, Paul appropriates for all believers, including Gentiles, a term that was commonly used of the old covenant people of God. They were called holy ones because they had been chosen by God. This descriptive expression became a common way of referring to the new covenant people of God in the early church. Paul wants us to see this continuity that God has chosen a people for himself and saved them by his grace. And he wants us to, to see that we are one in Christ. He's going to pick up on that thread more in, in chapter 2. He talks about being made one new man. So these Ephesians are saints, but how did they come to be saints? How, how did this happen? Well, through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. Indeed, God would cause, through Paul's ministry, a holy disruption in the city of Ephesus. Paul shows up there and we read about his ministry. He, he begins ministering in the hall. I'm sorry, he begins ministering in the synagogue. He gets kicked out of there. And then he sets up shop in the hall of Tyrannus for two plus years and serves as pastor to the Ephesians. No, getting to know them and love them. And the impact of his ministry is so great. So many people come to believe that there's an economic downturn in the idol-making industry. I love this story at the end of Acts chapter 19. There's a, a dude named Demetrius who's a silversmith, and he gets kind of his guild all riled up because people have stopped buying idols, specifically idols to the goddess Artemis, who's also known as, as Diana. I mean, this city, Ephesus, was characterized by idolatry and sensuality. And Artemis was its most notorious deity. I mean, the size of her temple, which was outside of the walls of the city, caused ancient writers to identify it as one of the seven wonders of the world. The influence of the Artemis cult permeated everything in the city. Her temple doubled as a banking center. Her image adorned coinage. A month of the year was named after her. Olympic-style games were held in her honor. And Artemis was considered a guardian of the city. She had a unique and prominent place in the pantheon of Ephesian deities. Artemis was what came to mind when you thought of Ephesus. And through Paul's preaching of the gospel to this people, this idolatrous people, the city had a holy disruption. Remember that riot at the end of Acts chapter 19? They all get to, together and for hours on end, they just shout over and over again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! because so many have abandoned her temple in favor of following Christ. These are the people that received Paul's message. These are the people to whom he is writing. People who had experienced a holy disruption from God. And because of that disruption, were walking a, a different course than the one they charted for themselves. God saved many who were in Ephesus and Paul, well, he would leave the city and he would be gone for years and years and eventually imprisoned. And during his imprisonment, he would pen this letter to the Ephesian church and intended to be circulated among all the churches in the region. God would use Paul's imprisonment to minister to them through this letter. God would use Paul's imprisonment to minister to us through this 
letter. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does he want for the Ephesians? Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace indicating God's free and saving initiative and peace. What God has taken the initiative to do, specifically to reconcile sinners to himself and to each other in his new community. Grace truly is God giving people the opposite of what they deserve. It's his unmerited favor. And there's a second aspect of grace that we don't often think about, but it is ongoing provision for his people. It's his strengthening and empowering of his people to live the Christian life. Indeed, we are given grace at our conversion. We are, we are saved. And then we are given grace each and every day as we are strengthened to continue following Jesus. We see grace in the second sense when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.9. God speaking to Paul Remember, Paul wants his thorn taken out of his flesh, and God says, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace strengthens and sustains his people in the Christian life. And it's this second concept of grace, this strengthening and sustaining grace, that Paul has in mind here in verse 2. He's saying, grace to you and peace to you from God and from Christ through my pen. It's actually, it's really interesting. If you turn to the end of this book in verse 24 in Ephesians chapter 6, you will see Paul starts, grace to you. And in Ephesians 6.24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And it's sort of like, I think this is neat. I don't want to over exegete, but, but I think it's there. Paul is saying, the words that I'm going to write to you are going to be grace to you. They will strengthen you and sustain you as you pursue Christ and you live the Christian life. And then at the end of his letter, he's saying, mission accomplished. If you have read these words, grace has come to you. And now let that grace remain with you and encourage you and strengthen you as you go on. It would be wicked arrogant if he did something like that and was not an apostle, right? But he is. It's effective. Grace comes to us through this letter. So that's Paul's story, and that's the Ephesian story. And now we need to talk about our story. Our story is, is, is very, very similar to Paul's and, and to the Ephesians and to all the saints that have existed before us. We were a people who were going our own way, guilty, vile, and helpless we, and a holy disruption happened in our life. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. We had trusted in ourselves, we thought we could make our own meaning and make our own way in the world, and then one day, somebody shared the word of God with us, the Spirit woke us up, changed our hearts, caused us to be born again, and we came alive. The cross is a holy disruption to us all. When we come face to face with the blood-soaked Savior, we can't do anything but love Him and mourn our sin. We come face to face with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. We cannot resist bending the knee and crying out, crown Him with many crowns. Crown Him the Lord of life. Crown Him the Lord of years. Crown Him the Son of God. Crown Him the Lord of Heaven. Crown Him, crown Him, crown Him. He is God. He is Lord. 
We cannot help but sing, O hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. This is the siren song of everyone who has come to Christ. We want to crown Him as King. We see Him and we savor Him. We see His beauty and we cannot help but fall down and worship Him. Our story is like Paul's story. It's like the Ephesian story. We had plotted a course in our mind. But the Lord, He established our steps. Indeed, before the foundation of the world, He chose us that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Therefore, we should be faithful as we go about our work, trusting that He is about His work. That's easier said than done. Especially when life goes a different direction than we would have planned even after our conversion. That note might, might sound a little bit louder in some of your ears over this past year than it would have prior I know many of you have experienced all kinds of pain and tragedy. Many have, have battled isolation and depression. Some, the, the loss of loved ones, continued battles against chronic illness. And it's tempting to say, how can I keep being faithful? What is God doing in this? We must remind ourselves. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think it was Spurgeon that said, even when you can't see God's hand, you can always trace his heart. I think what he meant by that is we can look at Christ and look at the cross and look at the darkness there. And think, if we didn't know, we'd go, what, what is God doing? What is God doing in this suffering? But then something happens as we continue to read the gospel. Jesus comes out of the grave. Sunday morning comes. And so as we resolve to be faithful in this life, and we can't always see the way that God is working it out, we need to remind ourselves, Sunday is coming. Yes, the Lord's day is going to come week after week. That, that Sunday is coming and it is a foretaste of that true and final Sunday when we will look full in his wonderful face and we will say, you did everything exactly the way I would have done it if I knew everything you know. You are God and I am not. Holy, holy, holy. And I want to, I want to take a moment to speak specifically right now to uh, those of you who, who have come over from the well over this past year. This was not what you planned. And I think it's important, even as we enter into Ephesians, there's a little bit of sidebar. There, there are two ways, at least two ways, of understanding how God wills. There's his will of command, right? Uh, so, for example, honor your father and mother. Not everybody honors their father and mother, right? And so, does that mean that God's will has been thwarted? No. Then there's his will of decree. This, this means things that God has ordained that will come to pass no matter what. So think Paul being knocked off of his horse and being blinded by the light, set apart to be an apostle. You all were content to be faithful in Lovingston, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, ministering to that community obedient to God's will of command. And yet, God's will of decree meant that you ended up with this mangy lot. 
it's not what, what we would have chosen. I don't think either of us. Our, our church, Rockfish, delighted in, in giving to and praying for the well. And you all, at least those of you who are here, liked worshiping together over there. And yet God brought to you and to us a holy disruption. I can say that you are here by the will of God because you're here and we're here. Now, that it might turn out that we grow to hate one another and uh, you know, we have a big fight over the, the color of the carpet or the strength of the coffee that's being brewed next door or, or, or something silly. But I assure you, God will get his glory. Whether through our spectacular failure together or through flourishing us together. I strongly believe that he intends to flourish us. Your disruption and your coming here, I have to confess, was an answer. I have so many reasons why I'm confident that God wants to flourish us, but, but here's the one I'm going to share with you now. Is, is it's because I prayed for this. I didn't know I was praying for it. Because God answered my prayer in a way that was unexpected. I have long prayed and continue to pray for this main hall to be filled so that people have to sit in overflow in the fellowship hall. And we're on our way. Long prayed for our witness in this county to grow and become greater. God is doing that. I've long prayed for someone that's good at all these things I'm not good at, like Dan, to serve beside me on staff. Additionally, a sidebar here, just to, this church should be so thankful for David and for Mike. If not, if not for them, I, I don't know if I would even still be here. They, they are godly men and wonderful elders. But I prayed for someone sort of like Dan, and, and it's funny to think back Years ago now, I was maybe my second year here. And he, he was in the early days of the well. And uh, we jokingly, one time, I, I said that to him. I said, hey, I, you know, I know I'm bad at a lot of stuff, and it seems like you're good at that stuff. Why don't you just come here, and we'll, we'll work together and figure it out. And, and at the time, we laughed. And this fall, God laughed. Here's the point. We have experienced a holy disruption. And God is working out all things according to the purpose of his will. We should be faithful. We should be really, really excited about what God is doing here. In us, corporately. And what I believe he intends to do through us in our community. God is at work. I mean, I, I, I get so excited when I think about this. I, mean, I have visions of meals stretching long into evening, of new burgeoning friendships, of, of shared pots of coffee, of, of singing around hospital beds, of pig roasts and, and movie nights, of praying with one another throughout the night, of serving during the day, of worshiping Lord's Day after Lord's Day as he pours out his blessing and makes disciples among us and does beyond all of our wildest imagination. And, and I want you to have that kind of excitement and that kind of hope together with me because God is at work. He hasn't left Nelson County and he is with us, among us, working and ruling and reigning right now. That should excite you. If God at work in your life doesn't excite you, you need to do some self-examination. 
Friends, we ought to delight in what God has done, is doing, and will do here among us. Because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And what better way for us to start our life together as one church than by going through this book of Ephesians that teaches us all about what it means to be the church, to be saints, to be the people of God. I, I love this book. I, I love this church. I'm so excited to be here. I hope you are too. You should wake up on some. I hope that you're excited. I woke up this morning and I thought, I am tired. Yesterday I was like tired all day. I, I feel drained. I can't wait to get to service. I'm going to meet God there. His people are going to encourage me there. I can't wait. Pray that would be your intention. I can't wait to learn all about doctrine and devotion in the book of Ephesians. We're going to go slowly through it, but we're going to try to keep the whole forest in view. And this book is a book about Jesus. One of the, one of the easiest things you can do when you read your Bible is take note of repeated words or phrases. So just for example, looking here at our first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read through chapter 1, you're going to see Jesus, 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 Jesus. This is a book that's all about Jesus. It's for the people of Jesus. And it's all to the praise and glory of Jesus. I can't wait. Aslan is on the move. Let's pray. Father, your grace is marvelous. Your wisdom is limitless. Your mercy is without end. You have rescued sinners like us for no other reason except for that you are good. You have loved us not because we have anything good in us. You loved us in our unloveliness. You have loved us since before the foundation of the world. This stops the breath in our chests and causes our minds to be confounded. This grace and mercy is too wonderful for us. You are too wonderful for us. We give you praise and glory and honor. We ask that you would give us a greater ability to exalt in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.